Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, and we want to begin by reading verses 8 and 9. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we have to open the word together to consider this unusual but important portion of Scripture. And Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and guide now and help each one of us to make application to today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to look at a passage in Exodus where uh, Moses employs some sign gifts before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And surprisingly, after he does that, and Aaron, but the magicians duplicate the miracle. Kind of surprising as you're just reading along. And so what we see here is a genuine God-empowered miracle followed almost immediately by a counterfeit miracle empowered by the demons. And this is a pattern that we find throughout the rest of the Bible. God does something, and Satan, whose goal it is to be like the Most High, imitates and counterfeits. And this was written for our learning and for our admonition. Now, just as a reminder to put this passage in its context, we've been going through this for months, but that's plenty of time to forget the context, so this will be just a little review. Back in chapter 3, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and told him that he was going to be the one, hand-chosen by God, to lead the Jews out of bondage in Egypt. And Moses, surprisingly, was reluctant to be God's servant in that way, and he said, I'm not a good speaker, and nobody's going to believe me. And so God gave to Moses three supernatural signs that he was to demonstrate, not before Pharaoh, but before the Jews to convince them that God had called Moses to be their redeemer from bondage in Egypt. And the first sign, Moses was to cast, the the rod was to be cast down and it became a serpent. And then the second sign we saw, Moses was to put his hand in his breast and, and when he pulled it out it became leprous, white as snow, and then when he did it again, it was healed. Now, this would have been something the Jews and the Egyptians would have been scared to death of, leprosy. You you didn't get cured from leprosy. And then the third sign was turning water into blood. Moses was to take pure water out of the Nile River, pour it on the ground, and it became blood. And this is significant because what we see here with Moses and Pharaoh is a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The power of God and the power of Satan. And this is unfolding. And remember, the Nile River was worshipped by the Egyptians. It was one of their many gods. And God was going to demonstrate his superiority to the folly of the Egyptian worship system. 
And so Moses was to take some water from the Nile, which they worshipped, pour it on the ground and turn it to blood. And this was a sign initially for the Jews to convince the Jews that Moses was God's man. And then in Exodus chapter 4, Moses and Aaron go to the Jewish leaders and, and they believed him. They saw the miracles. They bowed their heads and worshipped. And then in chapter 5, we saw that Moses, armed with the very same miraculous power, was then told to go in unto Pharaoh. And he performed the very same miracles, but Pharaoh rejected it. Pharaoh refused to let the Jewish people go. And in fact, not only would he not let, would not Pharaoh let the Jews go from bondage, he made their bondage worse. He gave them extra burdens to perform, assuming that they were idle if they wanted to go worship. And now we read in chapter 7 that now after the first rejection by Pharaoh, Pharaoh rejected Moses, he rejected his demand to let the people go, and he rejected the, the miracles. Now God sends Moses right back. And he's armed with these miracles. And this is what we read in chapter 7 and verses 8 and 9. God said to, the Lord spake to Moses and Aaron saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, show me a miracle. Then he was to show them the miracle. And in verse 9, Moses was going to take that rod, cast it down before Pharaoh, and it would become a serpent. And then we read in verse 10, And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so. They did just what God told them. And so the Lord, as the Lord had commanded, and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. So here Moses came as the representative of Jehovah God, the great I Am. And he presents a demand to Pharaoh and he gives supernatural authentication of his person and his ministry, authenticated by God himself. And these miracles were to demonstrate that Moses was sent from the Lord, the true and living God. Now, if you flip back to chapter 4 for a minute in verse 5, in verse 5 of chapter 4, Here, Moses records the purpose of those sign gifts. It was that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. Same purpose. In chapter 4, the purpose of the sign gifts was to authenticate Moses before the Jews. In chapter 7, the the sign gifts were to authenticate Moses and Aaron before the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, a sign is designed to point something out. Maybe many of you came here by Route 93, and there are signs on the side of the highway, and you need the signs to let you know it's a warning. It's it's saying, hey, wake up, here's here's a sign. It's telling us something that, that we need to think about. A sign was designed to grab the attention of men, and a miraculous sign was a designed by God to capture the attention of men and to make them stop and think, to stand in awe. It was something that was supernatural. It was something that they didn't see every day. 
If, it, if you saw it every day, it would have no value as a sign. And these signs authenticated Moses. And Moses feared that the people wouldn't believe him. So God gave Moses supernatural signs, reasons for people to believe him. They were to authenticate the message and the messenger. That he was the one that God sent, Jehovah God, the great I am, to deliver the Jews from bondage once and for all. Now, some would require a second miracle. Some wouldn't believe just one, so God gave more miracles. And here we have a picture, Egypt. Remember the Pharaoh pictures? Typologically, he was a type of Satan. And Egypt was a type or a symbol of the world system. And the Pharaoh was the god. The Egyptians believed that their Pharaoh was a god and a king. And so the Pharaoh was the god of that worldly system, Egypt. It was a picture of this present world system and the Satan, the god of this world. And so God was trying to get the attention of the king of Egypt. And the reason that he gave Moses and Aaron the capacity to do sign gifts was to capture their attention. Now, supernatural sign gifts have never been the norm throughout the Bible history. As you read through the Bible, there were very rare occasions where we see uh, supernatural things taking place. Now, there were several that occurred. They occurred in clusters, but it didn't happen all the way through the Bible. Signs and miracles were never the norm. However, during certain limited time periods, and in order to accomplish God's sovereign purpose, he used these sign gifts to get the attention of men. Remember when Naaman was healed by Elisha, he said, Now I know that there's only one God in all the earth. The healing authenticated the messenger. And then in 1 Kings, the woman whose son was raised from the dead by Elisha, she said after this, by this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of God in thy mouth is truth. So the sign gifts were designed to authenticate the messenger and his message. Now let's think for a minute of the supernatural power that was displayed after Moses and Aaron cast down the rod. Look in verse 11. Then, after this supernatural sign gift that came from heaven through Moses and Aaron was displayed before the Pharaoh who considered himself a god, Pharaoh called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now, the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. So notice what we have recorded here. God did a supernatural miracle, a genuine miracle coming from the power of God to authenticate his servants. And then the power of darkness duplicated it. The magicians were able to duplicate or counterfeit this miracle by turning their rods into serpents. And look in verse 22. And the magicians of Egypt did so. And we read this in several occasions in the next few chapters. In chapter 8, 
when uh, Moses began with the plagues of Egypt, the, the magicians in Egypt were able to duplicate some of those miracles. But notice if you turn to chapter 8 and verse 18. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So the miracles of the magicians, though they were genuinely supernatural, demonic, but real, they were limited. And they could not continue to duplicate and counterfeit everything that God was doing. And notice in verse 19 of chapter 8, Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. We're no match for him. This is from God. This is from Jehovah God. They were acknowledging the superior power of the God of Moses and that their puny little enchantments were no match for him. What we see here between Moses and Aaron standing before the Pharaoh and his magicians and sorcerers, there is really a clash of kingdoms, if you will. And this is how we're introduced to this conflict, this spiritual battle early on in the Bible, right here in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. This is a conflict between light and darkness. This is a conflict between God and Satan. This is a conflict between truth and error. And what might be surprising to some is the significant role that magicians and sorcerers played in the ancient world. Now remember, Pharaoh was the king of the most powerful empire in the ancient world the greatest civilization up to that time. And when trouble came, he immediately went to his magicians and sorcerers and wise men. This was part of the religion of Egypt. It was infused with magic and superstition. And behind all of that was the power of Satan and his demons. And though their power was real... It was infinitely short of the power of God and no match for God. And yet, on the other hand, from an earthly perspective, it was sufficient. The magic, the demonic miracles were sufficient to dazzle men and keep the superstitious minds of sinful and blind men under its spell. And it's surprising how often we see this in the Bible. Back in Genesis chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but in an earlier Pharaoh in Egypt, it says, A Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream, and it came to pass that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and he called for the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. So this is common in Egypt. In Daniel chapter 2, we read, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, and his spirit was troubled. And then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to show the king his dreams. It was very common in the ancient world. Forbidden in the book of Leviticus, it was forbidden by the Jews to be engaged in witchcraft or sorcery or magic. But it didn't stop them. 
There were kings like Manasseh and other kings that uh, sort of gravitated to that. And remember King Saul. He, God wouldn't answer his prayer because he was in rebellion against the Lord. And so he sought a medium. And we read in the New Testament. We just read last week about the Magi. Short for magicians. The Magi, the translated wise men in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, it comes from a Greek word, Magi, which is short for the magicians, the astrologers. And they came from the east of Jerusalem, somewhere in the area of Babylon. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? That's where he had been. That's where he sought for the magicians and the sorcerers. And then as we go through the New Testament in the book of Acts, remember Simon, the sorcerer, in Acts chapter 8. And then there was that young slave girl in Acts chapter 16 who had demonic power to, uh, for uh, soothsaying and foretelling the future. There's a long list in the Bible of those who were given to the superstitious and to astrology and to magic. Now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes for us an interesting passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 8, now Paul is writing about the spiritual moral decline in the last days. And one of his illustrations is found in verse 8, where he says, Now as Janice and Jambres withstood Moses, so also do these resist the truth. In other words, in the last days of the church age, men will be resisting the truth just like Janice and Jambres, and most believe these were the magicians that resisted Moses as he stood before Pharaoh. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith or the truth. But what's interesting here is these men withstood Moses. Now, we're not told their names in the Old Testament, and either this was these names were passed down orally by tradition and happened to be accurate, or there are uh, extra-biblical books with their names in it. uh, Paul may have taken those names from that book, knowing that they were accurate, and recorded them in the Bible for us. But either way, what we have here is a description of the fact that the Apostle Paul tells us that these were real men that withstood Moses. And they had real demonic powers behind them. And now Paul is warning us that in the last days, that men, the doctrines of men will be doctrines of demons. Demonic power. And they're withstanding the truth. They're in opposition to the truth, just as it's always been. There's always been this clash between light and darkness. And just as these men withstood Moses, we shouldn't expect anything different today. Our adversary has always opposed the truth. He's always opposed light. So now Paul tells us that in the last days, the opponents of the truth will use the very same tactics that those magicians in ancient history used against Moses to withstand him. But how did Janice and Jambres, how did these ancient magicians withstand or oppose Moses and the truth? How did they resist the truth? 
What method did they use back in the book of Exodus to oppose the truth? That's what Paul is telling us to think about that. It's similar to today. And what did they do? They tried to be just like Moses. Sort of anything you can do, we can do better. And that's Satan's goal, to be like the Most High. It's sort of like saying, well, we're all the same. See, his, his, uh, his powers of Moses and the powers of God and the powers that the magicians had, we're all the same. We're all doing the same work. Maybe little minor differences here and there, but let's all work together. We're the same. And no, they weren't the same. And it was the same kind of confused, blurry thinking that we saw in, in mentioned Remember when the Jews went back after captivity to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple? And we read that the adversaries of Judah said to Zerubbabel, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, they came and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God just like you do. It's always been the tactic of our adversary to imitate what God does. That's the power of darkness. And so, on the surface, the opponents of the truth appear to be proponents of the truth. They haven't, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Now, they don't deny power altogether. They're fine with demonic power, but they deny that God's power is any different. And in doing so, they seek to neutralize the truth, to sort of blend dark and light together. By pretending that there's really no difference between the kingdom that God intended to establish on the earth and the kingdom of darkness that Satan had already established on the earth. We're all the same. Let's work together. And so Paul's point in 2 Timothy 3 is that in the last days, expect the same tactics. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see our adversary today seeking to make the world like the church and the church like the world and to blend it all together. So it's really hard to tell the difference. You know, we live in a country, thank God, with a rich Christian heritage. But we are being lulled to sleep by the thinking of our adversary. And now it's getting such that with the resistance of Christianity in our country, even among believers in the evangelical world, the thinking is, well, we're all the same. We just have different backgrounds, different traditions. Well, it's got nothing to do with backgrounds or traditions. That's irrelevant. It has to do with truth. It has to do with light. And the magicians and the sorcerers played an important role in Egypt and in Babylon and in Rome. Now, that's surprising to me because I've always kind of connected demonism and witchcraft and sorcery and all of that with some backward cultures of uncivilized people out in the jungle somewhere. But in the Bible... It's associated with the greatest civilizations on earth. 
And in fact, as we go on into the book of the Revelation, we discover that this kind of demonic activity and deception and supernatural powers are going to flourish in the tribulation period and under the revived Roman Empire of the last days. Amazing that this kind of demonism and darkness is going to so dominate the future culture and civilizations. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Janice and Jambres resisted Moses. They opposed Moses. They tried to look like they were the same, but they were really enemies and they were opposing him. And here Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, our responsibility in these days in which we live is to fight the good fight of what? The faith. There's a definite article before that word faith, which indicates the faith, which is a New Testament uh, description of the body of Christian doctrine. That we are engaged in a battle for the truth, for light, for the faith. And that means that doctrine matters. It always has, it always will. It was withstood in the days of Moses by the magicians. They resisted the truth. They promoted an error. They were promoting darkness. And remember the topology here. Egypt was a picture of the world, a type of the world system. And Moses represented Jehovah God, God's people. And there was a clash They did not blend together. There was a clash. There was a warfare. And what we're going to read about in the next chapters uh, in the book of Exodus is all-out warfare between God and the power of darkness in the world's greatest civilization at the time. A battle between truth and error, light and darkness. Now, we need to keep this in mind. These things were written for our learning and for our admonition because we live in a modern culture, in a civilized culture. In a civilized culture that is fast rejecting every last vestige and connection to Christianity that remains. Rejecting those little pockets of light here and there and more and more opposing it. And when the light is dimmed, darkness takes over. In the last generation or two, probably all of us, more so the younger folks, the world system has been grooming us gradually to see things not as right or wrong, light or darkness, truth or error, but to see everything as a blurry kind of gray. Grooming us to be scared to death of making a value judgment and say, this is true and that's error. And I suppose if the world's present philosophy were a religion, its greatest sin would be dogmatism. Taking a stand for the truth. That's taboo today. You don't do that in polite circles anymore. And in our postmodern, multicultural, PC world, where everybody's views and everybody's religion and everybody's philosophy and everybody's view of truth 
is to be considered of equal value. And if you dare say otherwise, you're a bigot. This is a rejection of absolute truth. And this kind of thinking is becoming more and more mainstream. And darkness is taking over our culture, our civilization, even though it's becoming more and more civilized. That civilization, like Egypt, the world's greatest civilization at its time, is rejecting light and embracing the darkness. And the sad part is even Christians are beginning to think that way, being conformed or allowing our minds to be conformed to the world. And just head into some of these new pop culture churches today and take a random sample of the average person in the pew and ask some of these questions. What would you think of a religious leader who said he had the whole truth and everyone else were liars and thieves. Kind of a bigot, wouldn't you think? Or what would you think of a religious leader that told his followers, I want you to judge everybody else, all their words and works. In fact, judge all things. Or what would you think of a religious leader that commanded his followers to make mental notes of those who taught things differently, different things, and avoid them. My guess is that most of those folks would be kind of repulsed by that kind of arrogance, that kind of judgmental spirit, that kind of pride. And of course, folks that are familiar with the Bible are well aware that I'm paraphrasing the words of Jesus Christ and his apostles. And my point is that there's always been a conflict between truth and error. And that's the battle that we're to be engaged in. And today it is becoming popular to disdain anybody that makes a value judgment. And this kind of thinking is making inroads into the churches. In many circles in the evangelical world, bringing up doctrinal differences is taboo. You don't mention doctrine. Now, Exodus, if there's anything we can learn from God's word, and I'm hoping that we're going to learn from his word, is that right from the beginning, there was a bold, sharp line of demarcation between Moses and his power and his God and Egypt, the world, and its power and its gods. And there was no blending of the two. It was one or the other. It was not a blurring together of the line, but a clash. But in our modern culture, our modern civilization, we have sought common ground. Let's all get together. Let's forget about differences between truth and error. Let's just all try to work together. And this has affected the churches. And that's why the doctrine of separation today is considered anathema. And that's why doctrinal statements that used to be substantial are now being shrunk down to little bullet points to a bare minimum, until it boils down to nothing but the gospel. We're gospel-driven. It's all about the gospel, which means those other things that divide in Christianity are of no value. With that. Forget about that. Let's just be all about the gospel. You know what the devil's next step is? 
then you don't understand what the gospel is. It's a rejection of light, little by little by little. And Exodus teaches us that it's really nothing new. Moses brought light to Egypt, and the darkness hated the light, and they rejected the light. Jannies and Jambres resisted the truth. Pharaoh stubbornly opposed God's will and rejected it. And if we're going to be valiant for the truth in the last days, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, don't expect anything different today. Now think about signs and wonders in the church age. Did you know that in the early days of the church, God gave supernatural signs to the believers in the church? They were genuine. Tongues, healings, miracles. But remember that signs and miracles were very uh, unusual throughout the Bible. There were clusters of them here and there, but it was not the norm. And in particular, there were clusters of miracles when a dispensation was changing from one age to the next. Now, guess what was happening? Moses lived in the dispensation of promise. And it was about to change to law. And during that dispensational transition, there were clusters of miracles and signs, plagues. And in the early church, when the dispensation of law was coming to an end and the church was beginning, God gave supernatural sign gifts and miracles. And there was a cluster of them at the beginning. And there was a purpose for that, to authenticate the new messengers and the message. But it was never intended to continue through, just like God gave manna from heaven while they were in the wilderness. But Jews have to work for their bread today. It doesn't fall out of the sky. God performed miracles for a certain limited time and a limited purpose. And yet, what do we see in the church age? Our adversary counterfeiting miracles. Satan's goal has always been to be like the Most High God. Paul warned the Corinthians that false apostles, they were deceitful workers and they transformed themselves into the apostles of Christ, even though they weren't. Back in the 1960s, in the United States, a movement started in California. We refer to it as the charismatic movement. And initially, they started imitating and mimicking the supernatural sign gifts that God gave as the dispensation began. And they all ceased, Paul tells us, those sign gifts ended, but this group wanted to revive them. Because they loved the supernatural and the mystical and the superstitious and to see something. Well, that was always considered kind of a fringe group, the charismatic movement, but not anymore. Since the 1960s, that fringe group has gradually worked itself into mainstream evangelicalism. And even though there always used to be, just like in the days of Moses, a clear line between Moses and his miracles and the magicians and their miracles, there was always a clear line of distinction between the charismatics, who are considered a fringe group, and the evangelicals and fundamentalists. There was a line. But now they're becoming mainstream. The charismatics are. And some of the most popular 
authors and pastors and teachers of the 21st century are opening the doors again in so-called fundamental churches to revive the charismatic movement. John Piper, he said, and I'm quoting, I am one of those Baptist general conference people who believes that signs and wonders and all the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians are valid for today and should be earnestly desired. One of the most popular authors today, and everybody's reading him. Now, thankfully, I've criticized John MacArthur in the past when it was necessary, like Paul had to confront Peter. But thankfully, John MacArthur is the only one in the New Calvinist that seems to be taking a stand against this. And in the New Calvinist movement, where they've opened the doors wide open for charismatic, what we would call charismatics and non-charismatics, John MacArthur is saying, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. And he's created a stir among the New Calvinists. And the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel, it's a, they've left the door wide open. And they're so popular, even in fundamental circles today. But here's what they've done, very clever. Because since 1960, most evangelicals and, and fundamentalists have associated the charismatic movement with something that's kind of wild and fringe and far out, they've decided to change the name. Instead of calling them charismatics, they call themselves continuationists, which means the sign gifts and miracles and powers continue right through this entire age. And those who don't believe that are called cessationists. And then we have the Sovereign Grace Churches, wildly popular with their music. Let me read the first sentence above their doctrinal statement. This summarizes who they are. It says, we are evangelical, reformed, and continuationists. And a lot of folks would just blur right over continuationists and not associate it with what it really means. And they're pushing and promoting all kinds of music today. And don't think for one split second that they're not infusing their music with their doctrine and their charismatic outlook. And so what we're seeing today is this charismatic worship has become the norm. Charismatic music is becoming the norm. Now charismatic sign gifts are becoming the norm. And taking over. Well, we just slept. It happened right under our noses. Now, guess what? In the future tribulation period, what should we expect when the church is gone and that time period that the Lord Jesus referred to as the worst period the world has ever seen or ever will see, just prior to the establishment of the kingdom? What will we see in that future day? Oh, and by the way, it's a transition from the church age into the millennial age. Clusters of miracles and signs and wonders. And they're not all from God. Paul tells us in Second Thessalonians, when that wicked one shall be revealed, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders with all deceivableness and unrighteousness. Doesn't sound good. Miraculous signs, 
accompanying the Antichrist, and he deceives the world. Right after that, he says, and God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. In other words, God's allowing that. Uh, If men don't want the truth, God will allow them to embrace a lie. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24. There shall arise false messiahs and false prophets who shall show great signs and wonders if it were possible that they should deceive the very elect. And then in the book of the Revelation, we have this repeated, the prophet that comes alongside the Antichrist. It says of him that he doeth great wonders. He makes fire come down from heaven and he deceives them that dwell upon the earth by means of the miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, the Antichrist. And on and on it goes. The ability to perform a miracle doesn't mean that God's in it. It may be real, but it could be demonic. And we've looked this morning at some miracles and signs and wonders. And that leads us to the only thing that's going to protect us in this very confusing age in which we live. So confusing, blending everything together. It's trying to extricate the truth from error is a full-time job. And the only way we're ever going to be safe is if we all determine before the Lord that we are not going to accept a superficial understanding of God's Word. We're going to dig deeper. And you're not going to be safe. You're not going to be protected against the wiles of the devil if all we have is a shallow understanding of the Gospel and a few things here and there, but none of those matter too much because as long as they know Jesus, that's all that counts. No, it isn't. Don't be satisfied with milk. Demand strong meat. And the purpose of the local church is for the edification of the saints, building up of the saints, so that we can stand in the last days and having done all to withstand in the evil day. And don't think that coming to church is going to be sufficient. We all need to be in God's Word every single day, feeding our souls, growing in our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, because there are a thousand and one evil influences out there, and we need to, all vying for our mind and our hearts and our affections, and we need to be saturating our minds and hearts with God's Word. In 1 Timothy, a book where Paul warns about the last days, He says, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Civilized cultures of the last day are going to be saturated with doctrines of demons, a way of thinking that is totally contrary to light. It's a darkened way of thinking, a godless way of thinking. And that's why Paul says, until I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Doctrine is almost a dirty word in some circles in the evangelical world. We should love it. It's another way of saying the truth. We should love the truth. Besides, Jesus Christ said, I'm the truth. I mean, he's the truth. Paul said to Timothy, 
Take heed to yourself and to doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt save thyself and them that hear thee. So those pastors that preach the truth and warn against error, Paul says that's a good minister of Jesus Christ nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine. And when that takes place and people receive the truth, they are safe. They are safe from being wooed away and drawn away into error. We still live in a clash of worlds between the power of God and the power of Satan. And as believers, God owns us. We are his own sons. And he wants our affection. He wants our minds. He wants our hearts. He wants our will. He wants us in total surrender to him. And we can understand that and appreciate that. And then we go out into the world and we're being torn and pulled in all different directions. It's the same battle that Moses experienced when he was resisted by Janice and Jambres. Paul says it hasn't changed. It is intensifying in the day in which we live. And that's why more than ever we need to put on the whole armor of God and give attendance to reading and to doctrine. And when that's the case, we won't get drawn away. There's our safety. God has provided safety for us. But our responsibility is to feed our souls with God's word, saturate our minds and hearts with it so we're not hoodwinked by those who come along with the Bible and say some sweet words. God help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the revelation of the spiritual reality of the day in which we live. And Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to learn of you, to know you in a deeper and a richer way, to know your word fully and never settle for milk, never settle for a superficial understanding of it. But Lord, help us to be students of your word, that we could stand and shine as lights in the midst of darkness, that others might come to know our Savior. And we'll thank and praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.